0: Welcome to the Liquid Church Podcast, a place where you can hear the timeless truth of God's Word in a way that's culturally relevant and cutting edge. You're tuning in for our series Passion, The Week That Changed the World. In this series, we are following in the footsteps of our Savior as we take a closer look at the last seven days of Jesus' life leading up to Easter. It's our hope this message will help you discover how God's story relates to your own and that you will leave feeling encouraged. Thanks for joining us today and enjoy the message. A lot can happen in a week. On Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem, hailed as a hero by cheering crowds waving palm branches. On Monday, Jesus turns over the tables of money changers in the temple, calling out their corrupt practices. On Wednesday, religious leaders plot to kill Jesus. On Thursday, Jesus celebrates a quiet dinner with friends. Later that night, he is betrayed and arrested in Gethsemane, He is beaten, brought to trial, and sentenced to death. On Friday, Jesus is crucified on the cross, suffering for sins he didn't commit. On Saturday, heaven held its breath. On Sunday, God turns the grave into a garden. Passion, the week that changed the world. Happy spring, everybody. Hey, let's give a big welcome to our campuses and Church Online. Everybody joining us today. Guys, spring is here. Easter is only two weeks away. Can you believe it? Make some noise if you're ready for warm weather. Who's ready? I'm ready, man. Hey, I want to encourage you to begin thinking about who to invite to Easter at Liquid Church on Sunday, April 9th. I am very excited for Resurrection Sunday. We have a special Easter choir that is going to kick it. And I've got a very kind of cinematic message that is going to take you to a garden in Jerusalem that I think you're going to love, but you need to invite Uncle Larry, okay? Aunt Edna, Grandma, Grandpa, invite your neighbor next door, that guy from the gym. Here's the deal. People are more likely to attend church on Easter and Christmas than any other time of year. So make sure to bring family and friends to church with you. That's in two weeks. Now, before we get to Easter, we've got a lot of territory to cover today. Um, We are now three weeks into this small group series called Passion The week that changed the world in which we're following in the footsteps of Jesus, we are tracing his steps during the last seven days of his life. I want you to think right now of where we have traveled so far. On Sunday, we saw Jesus enter Jerusalem. On Palm Sunday, he made his triumphal entry on a donkey into Jerusalem. He was hailed by the crowds. They're waving palm branches. Hosanna, here comes the king. But Jesus does not take a right to uh, the Herod's palace where everybody thought he'd go. On Monday, Jesus takes a left, and he stirs up trouble at the temple. He goes right to the house of God, and he begins flipping over tables where they're selling stuff to clear the way so people can get to God. And people love subversive Jesus. He is growing in popularity during Passover, but the religious leaders are feeling threatened by now because he's openly challenging their power, their authority. And so by Tuesday, they set in motion a plot to kill Jesus. Last week on Thursday, we saw Jesus take his disciples to an upper room to celebrate the Passover meal, where he had a quiet dinner with friends. And Pastor Zach showed us how Jesus put an apron around his waist, and he got down on his knees to do what? He washed their their feet to show he's a servant king come to serve his people. And that intimate meal with friends, Jesus actually takes these ordinary elements of the Passover, ordinary bread and wine, and he he transforms them into community. He says, this is my body. This is my blood for you. He says, you know what? I've got a seat at the table for everybody, for the rich, the poor, the religious, the doubters, the weak, the prideful, the insecure. This blood's for you. So today, we're going to join Jesus as he leaves the upper room with his disciples and visit one of his very favorite places in Israel. It's called the Garden of Gethsemane. This is Thursday night, approximately April 2nd, AD 33. And in this olive orchard, Jesus will be arrested, betrayed by Judas, and his disciples will desert him. Now, I want you to put your seatbelt on. Everyone say, buckle up. Buckle up, because things are about to accelerate. In the next 24 hours, the Sanhedrin will condemn Jesus. The crowds who shout, Hosanna, will now cry, crucify him. And Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, will order his execution. And Roman soldiers will torture and nail him to a cross by Friday at noontime. Like we've been saying, a lot can happen in a week. Now, to really drive home Jesus's journey to the cross today. We are going to, I'm going to ask our ushers at every campus to come out, and we're going to pass out nails to everybody at our live locations. Go ahead, take a nail, pass it down your row. You can hold this as we go. Um, As you know, Jesus' hands and his feet were nailed to a wooden cross because that is how crucifixion worked. We're going to get to this in a minute, but I want you to hold this nail in your hand. We're going to end up here today at the cross, but I want you to hold up your nail when you got it. Hold it when you got it. we got a lot of ground to cover to this cross, so let's go. I am in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. This is a biography of Jesus, and Mark said this. When they had sung a hymn, it was probably a psalm, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus told them, you'll all fall away. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd, And the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter declared, no, no, no. Even if all fall away, I will not. (laughs) And Jesus answered, no, no, no. (laughs) Truly, I tell you today. Yes, tonight, Peter. Before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, no, even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I'll never disown you. And all the others said, oh, same thing, count on me. Pause here. So the moment they leave the upper room, the disciples start getting bad vibes. There's a sense of something ominous, something bad's about to happen. But you got to give it to Peter. He's confident. He's like, Jesus, I'm with you no matter what. And the rest of the 12 are like, yeah, us too. We're, We're in this with you until the end, Savior. So I want you to imagine they leave Jerusalem. They're actually outside the city walls and they take a 30-minute walk. Where would you walk in 30 minutes from your house? They go down through the Kidron Valley up to a little orchard located at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And this is a historical place we will visit in person on our trip to Israel this spring. Mark 14 gives us the name. It says they went to a place called, everyone say, Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, hey, sit here while I pray. And then he divided them up. He took Peter, James, and John, his inner circle along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and what? And troubled. Now, we're about to see Jesus maybe like you've never seen him before. He says, "My, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them stay here. Keep watch with me. Now, this is fascinating because the name Gethsemane literally translates to olive press. Can everyone say olive press? Olive press. And you can see it's a garden full of ancient gnarled olive trees. Some of them are over 900 years old. So think of it this way. Gethsemane is the original olive garden, (laughs) okay? Just no breadsticks. (laughs) But in Jesus's day, This was an orchard where they harvested olives, and what they did is they pressed and crushed the olives to produce olive oil. You get this. Oil was actually a very precious commodity in the first century. You could use it for cooking, for medicine, and you'd use it to anoint kings. Now, remember in the Bible, oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And so they would pour oil over a king's head to anoint him with God's strength, his wisdom, his power. But here's the thing. The only way you get the oil is to crush the olive. You can actually visit the ancient cave where they would pour the olives into the press and crush them between two stones to draw the oil out. Now, take a look at that and keep this image in your mind, and I want you to catch this truth in your heart. Only when the olive is crushed does the oil get released. There's a spiritual principle here. We are about to see Jesus being crushed. And God will release an anointing in his life, a supernatural strength to face the suffering to come. When we visit Gethsemane, you'll see it's a beautiful secluded garden. It's the perfect place to pray and seek solitude. Jesus would often take his disciples here to get away from the crowds in the city and they would just kind of rest. But Thursday night was different. You see something different with Jesus to start with? He's he's overwhelmed, He is stressed out. Mark says he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul's overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here, keep watch. I don't want to be alone. Anybody ever feel overwhelmed? (laughs) Anybody here, honest moment, struggle with anxiety? Maybe you're facing something, this growing dread of what's coming. And Jesus is like, I'm feeling so stressed by this, guys. It's like it's killing me. And that's why he wants his brothers around him. He's like, would you you stay and, and keep close to me? But the Bible says they all fell asleep. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, Daddy, he said, everything's possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So understand where we are. Gethsemane is a place of prayer. This is the location where Jesus wrestled with the reality of his coming crucifixion. That's why he says, take this cup from me. It's it's a cup that's filled with suffering. Yeah? He, He can look into the next 24 hours and he sees a cross that is sitting before him. See, crucifixion was not just a type of capital punishment. Crucifixion was the worst kind of death reserved for the worst kind of people. The first thing the Romans would do is they would strip you naked, and then they would flog your back with a cat of nine tails, tearing your flesh into ribbons. And they would stretch you out on a cross and drive nails through your hands and your feet. And then they'd lift you up on a public road so passerby could taunt and mock and spit on you. Do you understand why Jesus says, Daddy, take this cup from me. I don't want to go through that. That's why he falls to the ground. He's overwhelmed by the horror of it. You would be too. Jesus says, can you, can you keep watch with me? I just need some, some friends I can count on because this is killing me. I think if, if you and I walked into the back of that orchard that night, and through the fog and the mist, we saw Jesus praying on the ground among those trees. You'd see a man under so much stress that he's emotionally wrecked. I want you to feel that nail. I want you to try to imagine what Jesus is feeling here. In fact, let me show you an ancient mosaic of Jesus. This is the Lord in Gethsemane. He is agonizing in prayer. He is full of sorrow and grief. In Luke's account, he reports, and you can see it, that Jesus' sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, Luke was a medical doctor, and he's describing a condition called hematohydrosis. It's where you're under such extraordinary stress that your capillaries literally burst, and your sweat becomes blood. So understand, Jesus is distressed. He's overwhelmed. He's in agony. He is wrestling with God's will. And he's pouring out all of his feelings and emotions to his Abba Father. I want you to think about this. For all eternity, God the Father and God the Son had been in perfect loving union. Jesus said, I'm in the Father. The Father's in me. But he's about to be torn. Lose his connection to his Abba. There is a cross in his path. There is a crown of thorns in his future. The Bible says the one who had no sin was about to be sin for us. And Jesus understood the moment that he took on the crimes, the sin of the world. He wouldn't just experience physical pain, but the spiritual and relational trauma of being separated from his father. And that's why he cries out, Abba, Daddy. Dad, everything's possible for you. Take this cup from me. Translation, is there any way out of this? Because I don't want to go through this. We pause here and I ask you, personal. Anybody here have a situation in your life that you're sort of dreading? You don't want to go through the pain of it. And you just want God to take it away. Take away the cancer, God. I don't want to go through the chemo. Anybody? I I don't want to sign the divorce papers. It's too painful. My my parents are now old and they're suffering. If it's possible, God, would you just take them in their sleep? Don't, Don't let them suffer. Jesus can relate. He prayed three different times for the pain to pass him by. And that's significant. Why three times? Let me show you what I learned in the Garden of Gethsemane. Hey guys, I'm standing in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the place on the Mount of Olives where Jesus went on the night that he was betrayed. If you look around, you'll see These are the olive trees, very similar to the ones that he walked among. We know he was in this place before he went to the cross. This was the place where he came to pray with his disciples. But do you remember something? He prayed. He said, Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. He didn't want to go through the suffering on your behalf. Here's something interesting about olives. Did you know that the olives from this press would be crushed or pressed three times to get the full olive out. Well, guess what? In the garden, Jesus prayed three times, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. In other words, he was being crushed, he was being pressed for your sin, for my iniquities, and by his wounds, praise God, we are healed. Jesus prayed so hard, the scriptures say that he actually sweat was like drops of blood. So understand, this is the place of suffering. Before there is the power of resurrection, there is the obedience of the cross. In that garden, your God was crushed like a grape, pressed like an olive three times. Take this cup from me. And each time his father said, no. My will and my purpose for your life is for you to drink the cup. And so Jesus ends this this powerful prayer by, by praying yet not what I will, but what you will. Four words that can change your life. Your will be done. Can you say those words with me out loud, church? Your will be done. It is a prayer of surrender. After pouring out his heart to God, Jesus opened his hands. He says, here's, here's what I want, Father. But in the end, You know best, Dad. Your will be done. Now, some of you may have grown up praying these words. If you grew up in a church or a family that prayed the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father. One time, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? We want to pray like the way you pray. And Jesus said to them, okay, well, you could start by saying, um, Our Father, he's your Father too hallowed or honored be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. You know, I thought about this week, and I think Jesus prayed this prayer in the garden because I think Jesus prayed this prayer every single day, day after day after day. And I'm telling you, some of you under the sound of my voice in this very moment today, some of you need this garden prayer. It is an open-handed prayer where you come to God and you tell him boldly, you tell him honestly what you want. Please make this illness go away. But not my will, but your will be done. God, if you could just please bring back my child. He's run so far from you. She's run so far from us, but your will be done. Lord, we really want to close on this house. We think this is the one. Would you please let the sale go through? But your will be done. It's a garden prayer. Personally, I actually pray this every morning as I work my way through the Lord's Prayer. I've been doing that for years. Because it's an incredibly honest prayer that pours out the deepest longings and hopes of your heart. But then you end by praying with open hands. Your kingdom come and your will be done. Because Father knows best. I'm just telling you, when the olive is crushed, that's when the oil is released. That's when the anointing of the Holy Spirit comes in your life. As God gives you the strength to endure another pick line in your arm, another jab with a needle, another scan, and God can flood you with a peace that passes understanding. As you pack your things at work or at home and move out and move on, God can give you supernatural strength and hope for a new future. Now, after Jesus prays this garden prayer, we don't know how long it took. I think it was hours. It's covered in two verses. I think it's hours of him wrestling. We are about to see a dramatic change in Jesus' demeanor. When he gets up off of his knees, he is no longer shaky, he's no longer overwhelmed, he's no longer emotionally stressed out and wrecked. Rather, he stands up strong, focused, resolute, determined to go through what's ahead. The Holy Spirit gives him this supernatural strength to face down the cross. He will set his face to the suffering before him. God has answered Jesus's prayer in a different way than he asked. Listen, listen, church, you or someone you love may be suffering today. And I understand it's very painful, extraordinarily painful. You may not be getting the answer you asked for, But God says, I will anoint you with my power and my peace if you will open your hands and surrender. Because when the olive is crushed, that's when the oil is released. And it's a beautiful thing. When a son or daughter trusts their father, even when the circumstances don't change, Jesus gets up from this prayer, and he goes and finds his friends who are asleep. They're snoring. (laughs) Returning the third time, Mark says, he said to them, are you still sleeping and wrestling? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. In Gethsemane, Jesus prayed. And then he was betrayed by Judas who you see here in this ancient mosaic. Judas was part of Jesus' team of 12. He was the treasurer of the group. He counted the money. He paid for the meals, but he also embezzled their funds. He was greedy. And he was also disappointed with Jesus because Judas wanted Jesus to start a political rebe- rebellion, overthrow Rome. But the more Jesus talked about, I'm going to die, I'm going to lay down my life, Jesus is like, mm, not interested. No thanks, Jesus. <laughs> I'm here for the money and the power, not the pain and the martyrdom. So Judas strikes a deal with the religious leaders who are threatened by Jesus. Mark writes, the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus, what? Secretly and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. They don't want to have a public riot on their hands at Passover because then Rome will come in and crush them. So they come up with this plan to arrest him in the dead of night. And they're like, who knows, who knows where Jesus hangs out after he leaves the city? Because at Passover, there's thousands of little tents and tarps and and, and encampments outside the city, hundreds of thousands of people, and Jesus could have just disappeared. And Judas steps through, and says, I know, I've been to the Olive Garden, I know the place, I could lead you there. And they give him 30 silver coins to take them to Gethsemane. So I want you to imagine as Jesus is praying and wrestling with his father, imagine in your mind's eye a thin line of flames of torches snaking its way through the olive orchard. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the 12, appeared, and with him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. You better t- tie him up because I've seen what he does. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And the men seized Jesus and arrested him. By the way, this is where we get the phrase kiss of death. Because Judas is not a true friend, he is a fake follower. And I think you can relate. Nobody can hurt you more deeply than someone who's close to you. Judas was an intimate ally. He had intimate knowledge of where Jesus ate and slept and where he spent his downtime, where he prayed in the quiet hours. And Judas had been to the garden. He'd been here with Jesus before on multiple occasions. That's why he can lead them there. And watch this. Even though Jesus himself knew Judas would betray him, Jesus still washed his feet in the upper room. I want you to imagine this. Washing the feet of someone who wounded you. Jesus still dipped his bread in the bowl and said, Judas, this is my body broken for you. Judas, this is my blood shed for you. In this moment, you and I learned something very important. Lean in. The real test of Christianity is not loving Jesus. It's loving Judas. It's one thing to love God, isn't it? But only God can love his enemy. I mean, could you love your enemy like that? The person who betrayed your trust, who wounded you deeply. Like, can I just ask, like, how how do you love someone who acts like a close friend, whom you're vulnerable with? You trust them. And then she stabs you in the back. He sells you out. Again, look at that nail in your hand. I'm telling you, the real test of Christianity is not loving Jesus. That's the easy part. It's loving Judas. Judas. No one can hurt you like someone close can hurt you. And listen, in a crowd this size, I can't begin to imagine all of your stories. I know some of you have stories of betrayal, of heartache, of deep wounds. But as your pastor, I know some of the common themes that surface. I've had people tell me, Tim, I never knew my dad. He split before I was born. He abandoned me. Or my parents broke up when I was seven. I, I didn't see my mom that much after that. Or maybe you had a friend who was, who was so close you felt like you could tell her anything. So you did. And then one day the friendship just like took this weird turn and that confidential, sacred information got casually shared with others. Who's that nail for you? Maybe... Maybe it was a business partner that you worked so closely with for years and you wake up that one morning and discover you've been lied to. It all comes crashing down like a house of cards. Or maybe it's, maybe it's someone you vowed to do forever with, your husband, your wife, and you discover they had a whole other side they kept hidden from you. And in a moment, it's revealed and there's anger and there's this ache of Betrayal of deception, trust that was earned over a lifetime, gone in an instant. I'm telling you, no one can wound you more deeply than someone who pretends to love you, but pierces your heart and leaves a gaping wound. You know, as humans, I think we have these these moments where if we're totally honest with God, We would pray something like, God, do you you have any idea what it's like to be stabbed in the back by someone close and lean in? If you listen and you lean in enough, I think you'd hear a voice whisper back to you. As a matter of fact, I, I do. As a matter of fact, I do. The God to whom you pray, who came to this planet in the person of Jesus, experienced... Every dark emotion that we do, including abandonment, betrayal, desertion, Jesus went through all of this for all of you. So he's actually able to help you. When you find yourself on your knees in the garden, wrestling with betrayal, nursing your wounds, wondering, will my hurts ever heal? Jesus whispers, I can help you. I can teach you how to get through this with your heart intact. Even if it doesn't change, I can, sh- I can show you how not to return evil for evil, but overcome evil with radical good. See, the real test of Christianity is not loving Jesus, it's loving Judas. And every person who lets you down in your moment of need. In Gethsemane, when things got hairy... When it went down, the gloves came off, the thugs arrived, their swords, their clubs, they start roughing Jesus up. You know what Mark says real simply? Mark says, then everyone, say everyone, everyone deserted him and fled. Everyone. Even you, Peter? Peter is like, even if I have to die, I'll never leave you. He hightails it out of there like a scared little schoolgirl. And over the next few hours... Peter will be asked, hey, aren't aren't you with Jesus? And three times, Peter will be like, no, I don't know them. Are you sure? I think, I I swear to God, I don't know them. And somewhere in the distance, a rooster will crow to start the morning hours. And this is the moment Jesus becomes the Passover lamb whose innocent blood will be shed to free his people. From sin and death, from Gethsemane, Jesus is taken to a secret trial in the dead of the night, led them by the Sanhedrin. That was the Jewish ruling body. In verse fifty-five, Mark says the chief priests, the the whole Sanhedrin, they were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they didn't find any. <laughs> Many testified falsely against them, so they brought people in to tell stories. But their statements didn't even agree. Hashtag fake news. <laughs> Hashtag fake evidence. Doesn't matter. The wheels are in motion. And they accused Jesus of blasphemy, claiming he's God. And Mark writes, they all condemned him as worthy of death. And some began to spit on him. They blindfolded him, and they struck him with their fists and say, prophesy! Who hits you? And the guards took him, and they beat him. Now, legally, the Sanhedrin couldn't actually deliver a death sentence, so they passed Jesus along to Pilate, the Roman governor. In the early hours of Friday morning, now, Pilate was a slippery politician. He would get elected today for sure in Congress. As you can see in this painting... Instead of going by the evidence, he just caters to the crowd. He says, what what shall I do then with this, this one you call? You call them king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? But they shouted all the louder, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So Pilate caves to political pressure. He sentences Jesus to death. Church and state together deliver the sentence, death by crucifixion. The most painful form of execution in the Roman world. First, Jesus would have been stripped naked, then flogged, that means whipped or lashed by Roman soldiers with leather whips that had shards of metal and bone in them. And Roman soldiers had a tradition of torturing the condemned before they executed him. So before the cross, the soldiers, Mark says, again, who knew this is all in the Bible? You thought it was just sanitized little stories. Mark 15 says this, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. And they put a purple robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! And again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff, and they <laughs> spit on him. And falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. Now I just want to give you a little warning, heads up. If you're sensitive to blood or violence, you may want to look away for the next 60 seconds. Oh. <laughs> Ma estas? Rosa pulcherrima. Aspicite il hom, Regem vermum. Ave Rex verminosus, ave! <laughs> <Roma regalis>. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> 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 This is the only crown that King Jesus ever wore on earth. It was a mock coronation. Because the Roman soldiers didn't just torture the victim, they literally made a sport out of it. And I know this is hard to watch, but historically I want you to understand this is accurate. In fact, let me show you the most chilling place that we will visit in Jerusalem. It's the underground catacombs beneath the traditional site of the praetorium. That's the governor's house, and that's where prisoners are kept. And as we walked through those catacombs, we saw ancient markings carved into stone slabs on the floor. And I said, is that graffiti? No. Archaeologists said what you're looking at there is a board game that the Roman soldiers played called the King's Game. Do you see the scorpion in the upper right-hand corner? That's the symbol of the Roman legion. They carved that. The big circle represents a crown. (laughs) That double square in the bottom is where the soldiers would roll the dice. They used sheep's knuckles as dice, and they'd roll the dice on a playing board, and here was the catch they each got to pick a condemned criminal and crown him king for the day and give him a robe and a crown. And then they'd roll dice for his possessions, roll dice for his clothes, his wife, his home. And they treated each prisoner like a king until they lost. And watch this. You know what you get if you win? You get to kill your prisoner. You catch this? The Romans literally made a board game out of crucifixion. And they picked Jesus to be king for a day, and they put a a, a robe, a purple robe, on his back and crunched a crown of thorns on his head, and they hit him over and over and over, and they spit on him, Hail, king of the Jews! Come on! Prophesy! Who hits you? This is the darkest day of the darkest hour in human history. When men murdered God and the God of the universe holds back his hand and holds back his power and absorbs all of the punishment that we deserved and out of holy passion walks to the cross for you. I know this is hard and this is intense, but we can't look away, friends, we have to place ourselves here because we're all guilty before a holy god like in one way or another all of us including me have rejected jesus gone our own way and i can't fully get my head around this hold up your nail i can't understand this but in some way when jesus is nailed to this cross he's carrying all of my sins and your sins that's what nails him to this cross Hold that nail, think about that. Every word you spoke that wasn't entirely true, every morning you woke up and you were petty and you were picky and you were mean and selfish, every lustful thought you entertained, every time you put money before people, every prideful boast, every cutting comment on social media that's what nails Jesus to the cross. And there on that cross, with nails in his hands, from a crown of thorns, your Lord, your Savior, hung for six hours, taking on the full weight of your sin, absorbing the full wrath of God in your place, slowly dying for you and for me. The passion. In his book, The Way, Walking in the Footsteps of Jesus, author Adam Hamilton writes, this is the kind of king we follow. A king whose standard is the cross. A lot of people look at the cross and see his suffering and death, but there's more. He says, when I look at the cross, I see a divine love story centered on a God who suffered to save his children. Friends, this is why we call it the passion of the Christ. People think of passion as meaning just the love of Jesus, but it's more than that. The word passion is from the Latin word pati, which means to endure, to suffer. So passion actually means you endure suffering because of your great love. His death on a cross is the most selfless love in the universe. It is a parent dying for a child. It is a lover dying for his beloved. The cross is God saying, I'd rather die than live without you. Guys, think about this. In Gethsemane, Jesus asked his father, Abba, if there's any other way, take the cup from me. And the father looked at his son and he said, but son, I love them so much. I love Phil. I love Aaron. I love Mike. I love Rosa so much. We have to save her. There's no other way. Will you take their place? And Jesus says, I love him too, daddy. So not my will be done, but yours be done. People say, Jesus loves you. (laughs) Yeah. How much does Jesus love you? (laughs) This much. (laughs) The cross is God saying simply his life for mine. Can you say that with me? Out loud. His life for mine. Burn those words in your brain. Jesus suffered for one reason, so you could be saved. Isaiah 53 describes it this way. But he was, what's it say, church? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was what? Crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought him peace was upon him. And by what? His wounds, we are healed. This is so important for you to grasp. Don't you dare leave here without understanding that nail. Hold that nail up. So many of you are carrying around a wounded past. And maybe you feel like that wound defines you. And you struggle to move beyond this thing. You feel defined by the person who hurt you, defined by that person who abandoned you, or betrayed you, or weren't there for you. They wounded you deeply. And my prayer for you this Easter is that you would be less defined by the one who wounded you and more defined by the one who was wounded for you. My prayer for you today is that you'd be less defined by the one who pierced you and more defined by the one who was pierced for you. Less defined by the one who crushed you and more defined by the one who was crushed for you. That's my prayer for you this Easter. That as you lean in to who Jesus is and what he did, there will come this moment of revelation and change where you're no longer defined by what was done to you, but defined by what Jesus did for you, amen? As you look at this nail, I pray there comes a moment when you realize that it's possible to be both deeply wounded and deeply loved, deeply loved by God who willingly endured all this for you. That love can heal a wounded heart. And over time, his spirit can give you a new strength to forgive those who've wounded you. That's when forgiveness and healing and freedom start to grow in your heart. Because you start to live as one, one who is treasured and one who is deeply loved by the only human history who came and walked The same road that you walked. What kind of king is Jesus? Jesus is a king who was crushed in a garden, who was crowned with thorns, and who was nailed to a cross so that you and I could be loved and forgiven by a holy God and experience the deep healing of your father in heaven. Amen? That's the kind of king you serve. A king who whispers to you, now, take up your cross and follow me. Follow me. I know God's speaking to some of you. I know the Spirit's talking to you. So I want you to take this nail home with you today. I want you to put it somewhere you can see it tomorrow morning. On your desk, in your car, in your bathroom sink. In the next few days leading up to Easter, I want you to let this nail serve as a reminder to meditate every day on what Jesus' passion means for you personally. And I want to encourage you, actually, in the morning as, as you pray, watch this, as you, as you do your breath prayers, that you would hold this nail in your hand as you pray. Actually feel it. Press the, I press the nail in my palm as I pray Like Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done. And remember these words, his life for mine. Jesus, your life for mine. You took my sins, you nailed them to the cross. Thank you, Jesus. Now give me strength, Abba, to forgive those who've wounded me. Because by your wounds, I am healed. In fact, let's stand up together right now for prayer. Wherever you are, would you just stand up with me? I want you to hold that nail up in your hand. Take a moment now, just hold it up. Just take a moment to be still. This is a reflective moment. Settle your soul. Focus your heart. Take a moment to pray silently. Just thank Jesus for doing what you could never do. Thank Jesus for his passion. is suffering out of love for you. And now, let's open our eyes and open our hands and let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. All our locations, one voice, pray out loud with me. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. Father, Spirit of Jesus, come now. Rest upon your people. Heal broken hearts, melt the ice and hardened hearts and draw them to your love. Draw us to the cross closer than ever in this Lenten season. We could never repay you. We can only offer our lives back to you now. In Jesus' name, everyone said together, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you want to check out Liquid Church for a weekend service, small group outreach, or clean water trip, you can find out more about us online at liquidchurch.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, go ahead and subscribe or share it with your friends. Thanks again for listening.